is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. Well, hello there. How's your Monday going? I hope I find you well today. It is great to have you along on the Country Hour today between now and the news at one. Some flooding in Queensland causing disruptions to the supply of some fruit lines coming into Western Australia. But, of course, that does open a few market opportunities for some of the local producers, particularly the banana producers. Also today, give you a taste of avocado ice cream. It is such a versatile fruit, isn't it? I mean, you can enjoy it in a salad, on toast, in smoothies. Can you enjoy it in ice cream? I don't know. Would you go for that? Why not? Got to give it a try, don't you? You don't know until you've tried it. That's to come here on the country. And, of course, just before one, off to Miche for the results of the cattle market. First up, though, a Perth-based startup company has caught the eye of Bill Gates. The billionaire's breakthrough energy venture is investing in Ruminate, a company working on a pharmaceutical product that it claims drastically reduces methane emissions from livestock. David Messina is the CEO of Ruminate. David, what does this cash injection mean for your plans to develop this synthetic anti-methane supplement? What it enables us to do is progress our our trials and registrations right around the world now and at the same time actually start uh, working on a pilot production plant. So prior to this injection, we would have been looking at doing those sequentially, but um, with this injection and and the validation of uh, our technology, we're now able to progress both of those things simultaneously which, of course, uh, means we'll be able to get our product to market much quicker. And how much is the Breakthrough Energy Ventures investing in the technology, David? Uh, look, they've come in as uh, they led this uh, second seed round, which was uh, we raised US $12 million. And by leading that, they were the, the single largest contributor within that funding round. And that took the total amount that we raised through our two seed rounds to, in, in Australian dollar terms, about $25 million. So it has been a, um, you know, for, for us and as a small starter, uh, a significant portion of that. Yeah, I mean, $25 million to me is a hell of a lot of money, uh, don't get me wrong. But when we're talking about Bill Gates, I mean, is that a, a kind of a drop in the ocean in terms of uh, support or a backing of a venture like this? Oh, 100%. Uh, you know, from, from that perspective, very immaterial. But what comes with that, and more importantly than, than the actual money itself, is the validation that our technology uh, is working very well. Um, obviously, they undertook extensive uh, due diligence on both the intellectual property and, and the results that we've seen to date, and also what our plans are for the next, um, next two to three years uh, and thereafter. And the way that that Breakthrough Energy look at this investment and, and our other shareholders as well, is this is the first step on a, on a journey that they'll be with us right through and continue to support the group. So at the end of that journey, um, the numbers start getting uh, much more material and and they obviously continue to help us uh, and guide us through that process with, well, with all their experience. So you've had that a guarantee that uh, this is only the start of the investment from Bill Gates Breakthrough Energy Ventures? Look, subject to us meeting our, our goals, obviously, and, and, and our business plan, then 
uh, it's always about um, the journey and the, the total investment because as you rightly pointed out at the beginning it's it's a relatively small amount of money right now but but obviously the the objective from them as an investor is is to put much more money into the group and obviously from our perspective that um, provides the ongoing support but um, but also the capability to to expand globally and we need companies like this or investors like this and also all the the partners of course within breakthrough who um who who bring an enormous amount of experience expertise being some of the most successful people in the world. The other notable investor is uh, Andrew and Nicola Forrest's Harvest Road business. Uh, how much is, has Harvest Road invested in the technology, David? Look, Harvest Road um, have just come in alongside Breakthrough Energy. And again, they saw our technology and the ability to work closely with, with their agriculture businesses being really important to them. But um, I guess a bit like breakthrough, we don't specifically disclose the uh, the amounts that um, individual groups put in. Can you give us an idea of the your plans progressing towards you know reaching production? Uh, as you said earlier, this kind of investment speeds things up a little bit. Can you give us an idea of the trials that are going on and that path that you're on to productivity? Yeah. So as I mentioned, there's a there's a, a large number of of animal trials which um, are, are currently going on and, and there's a number more. Uh, I think during the course of the next 12 months, we total about 12 in, in four different countries. Um, and that's part of the ongoing development with various formulations as well as commencing data for the respective registration programs, uh, which differ slightly in each jurisdiction. In parallel to that, we are building a pilot production plant. And by the second half of this year, we hope to be producing thousands of doses per day so not millions but certainly tens of thousands of doses per day and within two years our objective is to to turn that into um, millions of doses per day. And where is that plant? Is that here in Western Australia? So the pilot plant um, is being built here in Western Australia. The commercial plant um, uh, we'd love to build it here in in Western Australia, but but we're a little way away from from making that decision. And when you've got investors like Bill Gates on board, do you think the the possibility of keeping it here becomes less and less, and there's more likely that that production plant is going to be somewhere else in the world? Uh, look, we're we're going to need numerous production plants. So uh, what we'd be looking to do again to make sure we accelerate the pathway to market for this product is working with partners, commercial partners in each uh, region of the world. And as part of that relationship, uh, look at production and distribution capabilities. So we're using existing expertise, existing production capacity, and we're simply uh, working with those partners so that we're not duplicating already existing infrastructure globally. David, thank you so much for the update. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. David Messina, he is the CEO of Ruminate and pretty excited to have on board as investors uh, Bill Gates' uh, company or founded company Breakthrough Energy Venture and also um, Andrew and Nicola Forrest on board and really, as he was just explaining, speeding up that process to finally reach the production uh, part of that whole process, getting together that um, synthetic product that it believes can drastically reduce methane emissions from livestock. 
It is 13 past 12. The WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. Australian Manuka honey producers have scored a significant win against a group of New Zealand producers who want exclusive use of the word Manuka. The New Zealand-based Manuka Honey Appalachian Society withdrew from appeals launched in the United Kingdom and Europe after losing trademark cases to Australia. The Australian Manuka Honey Association's Paul Callender says it's the right decision and well overdue. It means to our industry that, you know, the, the industry from our perspective is now significantly de-risked. We were being asked by um, partners and distributors around the world, you know, what's the situation with New Zealand? And obviously we'll be now sharing this outcome with the world through all of our members and channels. Uh, so it's a very, very significant uh, outcome for us. And we wish we hadn't had to go through it, but that's what happened. Can you update at all on the other matters that are happening around the world? Well, the only other one that was alive was was with Europe. They've also um, stopped uh, pursuing the trademark name in Europe. And the only outstanding one now is uh, the IPO office in New Zealand, which we're waiting for a decision on. You know, and hopefully it's been a year now, so hopefully there'll be a decision coming out of there soon. And um we hope it's the right decision. You know, obviously for us, it's a one-way trade with New Zealand. We can't sell any honey to New Zealand, uh, but they sell an awful lot of honey over here. So we hope it's the right decision, but it's not a significant market for us. And are you hoping what's taken place in the UK and EU, they are different jurisdictions, but you know, if the weight of your argument has carried in those uh, courts that it might uh, influence New Zealand's actions in any other future disputes it might have decided to take against Australia and other countries? Oh, they, they are independent jurisdictions, so we 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 don't know for sure if um, you know these decisions in the UK and Europe will have any bearing at all on uh, on what New Zealand uh, does. Uh, we just hope it's a rational conversation. Obviously, we've been asking for collaboration with New Zealand for many years, and that's been uh, turned down at every time. So um, perhaps these outcomes will change their thinking a little bit. Manuka's always been an extremely valuable product, both domestically and in export markets, especially around uh, southeastern and eastern Asia. Can you give us an idea of the size of this market? Yeah, Clint, it's very hard to um, put a dollar number on it, but you know the forecast for the general market for Manuka honey is about 1.2 billion by 2027. Now, when you break that down or try to break it down into things like medical products or uh, prebiotics or um, creams, eczema, acne, or other throat lozenges, uh, throat sprays, things like that, it's very difficult to get a, an exact handle on the, the number. But certainly all of the health benefits of the honey are well known globally and a lot of value-add products are now coming to market besides just the honey in the jar. And while Asia has been a big market for Manuka in the past, uh, the US is obviously picking up and Europe's been a reasonable market and the UK for the honey has been a large market for a long time. 
When we last spoke, Paul, just before the hearing that was going to take place before the New Zealand uh, Intellectual Property Office, you were calling on more support from the federal government. I think at the time you weren't receiving much at all. Has the government come through and supported the industry more in the intervening years? Yeah, it's, it's you know, while we've had a change in government, we've uh, re-engaged with the new government and we've had ongoing support specifically for the funding from the Attorney General's office, which has been very helpful, and obviously with uh, trade and agriculture uh, on a watching brief with us as well. So um, they have been more engaged, and um, obviously this outcome is, is, is good for Australia. The Australian Manuka Honey Association's Paul Callender speaking to Clint Jasper. 17 past 12. Well, the fight might not be over. Because as you heard in the news just a little while ago at the 12 o'clock news, New Zealand Manuka honey producers say they're going to continue their fight over the use of the word Manuka by their Australian rivals who have overcome a legal battle in the long-running trademark dispute. Now, since 2016, producers across the Tasman have been attempting to block the use of the word Manuka, claiming consumers think it exclusively originates from New Zealand. However, as you just heard, a UK court has found the word is a descriptive term for antibacterial honey and as such can't be trademarked. John Rawcliffe from the Unique Manuka Factor Honey Association in Auckland says they're not ready to give up just yet. We have refiled under CTMs, we have the options of GIs and we also have other legal options available to us and we knew it was going to take time. It's time for the Scotch Whiskey Association to get to where they are, Parmesan G's, French Champagne, all those marks and all those things that identify to the consumer what is right, it takes a long time to achieve. John Rawcliffe, we will watch this space, 19 past 12 to the grains industry now, and grain growers wanting to use double-strength zinc phosphide mouse bait are now required to complete a short training course to access the product. Grain growers have had access to ZP50 or Zinc50 under an emergency permit since 2021, but as part of the conditions for its use to be extended until the end of the year, training and reporting is now required. Andrew Wiedemann from Grain Producers Australia says the course can be found online, it's free, and it's relatively quick and easy. From the start, uh, with the, the videos that are there on the screen and so forth, it took me about 18 minutes to do the whole thing from the start to the finish. What will speed it up, though, Kelly, is if people have got their ACUP number uh, and the details around that uh, on hand before they start it, and, and that'll speed it up a lot more. But a major part of that is obviously the training component and understanding the label, the requirements around the label. That is something that uh, is quite pertinent, particularly the Zinc 50, in terms of its application and growers being aware of it. There's a short video of five minutes. It's in that 18 minutes that it took me uh, to do the course. Um, and that gives you information around what to look for uh, when you're preparing to bait. That's the important part also for the reporting back is to understand whether growers are uh, facing a mouse plague situation or a low population so that we can get a better handle for when we're looking at registration. So the information that we're collecting here as part of essentially what I call a large research trial is information that will help and assist us and the manufacturers in the future to go to full registration of the product.
ZP50 has been available through an industry permit since 2021. Why is the training necessary now? For these emergency permits, there actually needs to be demonstrated need. And so for the extension of the permits, we're expecting that there'll be a large mouse population build-up, in particular probably Wimmera Mallee, Southern Mallee in uh, South Australia uh, this year. And obviously we're coming off the back of a big plague situation in Western Australia and New South Wales was the precursor. We're to demonstrate that there is a need for the emergency permit to exist to the regulator. And of course, full registration is now possible with the information that we've been able to gather through from the CSIRO's work and the National Working Party for Mouse Management uh, as well, uh, being involved with growers anecdotally providing the support for the product. Would you be encouraging farmers and people applying mice baits to complete the training sooner rather than later? Yeah, look, so we're, we're looking for uh, people to obviously undertake the training so that we can get the feedback as well uh, around it. But essentially, just making sure that people are well and truly aware that they can actually do the training, you know, within time so that they can then make sure that the bait is available through their regional supplier. Are you confident that there will be adequate supplies in a few months' time when people are going to start looking for it? Look, at this stage, I would suggest that the manufacturers are well-placed to be able to provide uh, the bait. And again, it's that communication between what the growers are seeing, the agronomists are seeing out in the field, and and generally speaking, their communication then back to the manufacturers. So we've got a number of the manufacturers on our current permit, and and as a consequence of that, they're working with us around this training requirement because that is also on them as a supplier and manufacturer to also be cognizant of their roles and responsibilities around the application and the purchasing of bait. And is it fair to say that there really isn't any other alternative mouse baits available if people choose not to do this training? CSIRO research work that was undertaken, um, it shows quite conclusively just how effective that Zinc 50 is on mice and the mouse population. And in fact, uh, Kelly, my observation is that we'll probably be using less bait uh, going forward because we'll have a much stronger substrate to be able to be used and used in under, as under the label conditions. Uh, Steve Henry's done a lot of work from CSIRO in this area, as you're well aware and listeners are well aware. Uh, so I'd suggest that you know, people make themselves uh, aware of uh, what can and can't be done around the usage of it uh, and uh, one of his training sessions as well. Uh, and also, just on the back of uh, the work that's been done to actually make Zinc 50 available originally in the research work, really came about from growers themselves from around the Birchip area, talking to us at the National Mouse Management Group, and then making sure that the research work was done and has now been proven to show that subsequent to how much feed's available in the paddocks, the Zinc 50 construct is actually the best available bait that they have now to use and, and was amazingly effective in the recent New South Wales, southern Queensland mouse plague uh, that we've seen uh, in the last couple of years. Andrew Wiedemann from Grain Producers Australia with Kelly Hollingworth. 24 past 12 on the ABC right across WA. Uh, very shortly an update from the newsroom for you and then off to the Bureau of Meteorology checking conditions this afternoon and for the rest of the week. First, though, flooding across Queensland is expected to delay the arrival of interstate bananas into Western Australia, opening up a chance for WA growers to fill that market gap 
as those bananas are in transit. Rod McPherson is the CEO of Market West, which represents WA's fresh fruit and vegetable industries. He says the effects of the delays should become more clear this week. The feedback I have from particularly one of our suppliers of Queensland bananas, one of our wholesalers, he expects the effect to um, be delayed somewhat because quite a bit of produce is already on the road. So that will arrive over the next few days. So the real effect won't kick in for a week or so, depending on how long it takes to um, re-establish access from that area of Queensland to the southern states. Has this been problems in previous seasons? Obviously, in not just across bananas, but there's been other product from the east coast with the significant weather events that have affected supply. That's not necessarily always been logistically. You know, I mean, a couple of years ago, there was a fire on the Malibor Plain, which uh, restricted access from the east coast to uh, WA, but that was across all produce, not just bananas. And obviously, um, Queensland is cyclone prone, so there has been other incidents that have caused shortages. And Rod, from your experience, what effects do these delays have here in Western Australia? Well, obviously, bananas are a a popular uh, consumable fruit, particularly for families and kids. So, what it's going to do is it's a good thing for locally produced bananas, particularly out of Carnarvon, but it will obviously supply and demand. We'll probably see a, a, either an increase in in uh, the price to the consumer or the consumer will source some alternatives, you know, they move away from bananas to other fruit and veg. So that's just a matter of supply and demand. And just lastly, Rod, uh, sort of along the same lines of that supply and demand, I've spoken to yep. a couple of growers who have suggested that if freight does get delayed from Queensland, they can be held up and then all of a sudden they arrive at once and we've got a massive influx and flooding of Queensland bananas, which can also reduce their quality. Obviously, if they've been delayed, they've been in the in the truck for longer than normal, which can then cause uh, retailers to sell them for a lower price. Have you heard of this happening and does that spell bad news for WA growers? Well, if they're Queensland bananas, it doesn't doesn't affect WA growers as much if there's a problem with quality. Bananas will often arrive in an unripened state, so they might be ripened uh, on site or go through the ripening process in transit. But yeah, obviously, the if they don't look good, might be nothing wrong once you peel them, <laughs> but if they're marked on the outside, that can put consumers off. But that won't be bad for WA growers because, again, if they seek out an alternative and it's a and it's a Carnarvon produced or a WA produced banana, that's good for local growers. Rod McPherson from Market West with Mark Foreman. If you want to know more about that story, you want to hear from the local growers, it's all online for you right now. Mark's put an online story together. Just search ABC Rural Bananas Carnarvon. And it should be, well, it will be. I've just done it. It'll be the first link that appears on your screen. Search ABC Rural Bananas and Carnarvon for more details. 28 past 12. An update from the newsroom is not too far away. First, though, would you eat ice cream made from avocados? Well, in the southwest of the state, a Manjimup avocado farmer plans to do just that. Thea Walker hopes to start an avocado ice cream business value-adding fruit that would otherwise go to waste. She's one of seven 2023 AgriFutures Rural Women's Acceleration Grant recipients for this particular business idea, and she says it would be a great way to reduce waste and benefit the farm. 
I've just been exploring different ways to utilise waste avocados pretty much from my own farm production and yeah sort of developed the idea of creating an ice cream with these avocados that are all ripening at the same time and I thought well hang on I'm using avocados using a few other produce that's grown on my farm such as passion fruit or hazelnuts and I'm like hey there's actually there actually could be something with this so I thought well why not look into starting it as a business, maybe commercialise it, maybe collaborate with some other farmers and see where it goes from there. And where did you get this idea? I was literally just Googling what can I do with avocados and this an ice cream, very basic ice cream recipe came up for avocados, dairy-free, and I thought, well, you know, I made it and it works. So I thought, well, let's roll with that. It's a good way to use up lots of avocados and, yeah, it tastes good at the end of the day. So that's the main thing. How does this benefit your farm? It gives us an alternative market to use our waste avocados. Before these avocados were either just getting sent to landfill or just going, you know, over to make guacamole in over east or somewhere like that. So we didn't really know what happened to them beyond us picking them. And a lot of these avocados, you know, there's nothing actually wrong with the inside of them. They just have a blemish on the skin or something like that. So they're still perfectly good avocados and we we're just getting lower prices for them for that reason. So yeah, so it means we can create a product here using those avocados, keep it local, keep the money within the community in a way and within our farm and yeah, that's pretty much it. Do you see a strong uptake for the Avo ice cream? I think so. Definitely with today's consumers, they're very environmentally aware and looking for sustainable alternatives for food and also healthy foods. So this product will be dairy-free and using local ingredients so at least the consumer can start to learn about where their foods come from and pretty much learn that, you know, this is a, a waste product but actually it can create a good product at the end of the day that it tastes no different to something that does make it onto the supermarket shelf. How far are you along in developing your business? Not very far at all. It's mainly just an idea at this stage. But using this grant, I'm going to hopefully be able to learn a lot more about a whole business and do a lot of networking with other people, with other farmers, with other people in the food industry. I have a degree in agribusiness, but not much actual knowledge in the food industry. So hopefully I'll be able to learn a lot more about that and get some ideas and start rolling with that. What does the grant that you have received involve? So it's pretty much just a $7,000 bursary for me to be able to look into doing courses, training, mentoring, things like that. So it's for leadership and professional development. Yeah, so pretty much just expanding my knowledge in business leadership, how to run a business, how to set it up, and hopefully work towards turning my idea into a reality at the end of the 12 months. What does it mean to you to have received this grant? Yeah, it actually means a lot. It means that I know that there's people out there that recognise this as something that would have value to communities and everyone pretty much. It also confirms that to me that this is an idea that has potential commercial value and could be something good and it means that, you know, and I think, okay, I can actually start doing this now. It's some step forward in the future, if you know what I mean. Thea Walker, she is a Manjimup avocado grower. She's one of the 2023 AgriFutures Rural Women's Acceleration Grant recipients for that business idea, making avocado ice cream.
28 to 1 here on the Country Hour and Brianna Shepherd is in the studio. What's making the headlines, Brianna? Hello. Well, the Fremantle Dockers have offered their condolences to West Coast Eagles draft Rep Bazo, whose mother, Kylie, died in a boat crash in Perth South. Another woman was killed in the accident and a man seriously injured. Dockers forward Sam Switkowski says the tragedy will be felt across the football community. New figures show WA's resources sector has seen another record year of sales despite falling iron ore prices. The 2021-22 financial year saw $231 billion of sales across the sector, up $1 billion from the previous record set the year before. Iron ore accounted for more than half of those sales at $137 billion. And the Australia Day Council of WA says it won't immediately change Olympic athlete Peter Bowles' status as the state's Young Australian of the Year. The 800-metre Olympic runner has been provisionally suspended after failing an out-of-competition drug test. More news at one o'clock. Brenna, thank you so much for that update. It is 27 to 1 here on the Country Hour. And earlier in the hour, just talking about the flooding situation not here in WA, over in Queensland, which is causing a few delays to a few lines of fruit, really. Um, Mangoes have been disrupted, but also bananas, which is what you heard about earlier in the hour. And that means that those Queensland bananas coming over to WA could be delayed a little bit. And we were just talking about how that might raise a few uh, quality issues just because they're being held up in transit. But on the text, Les and Gero says Queensland bananas have no quality. So there won't be any change when they arrive. That is harsh, Les. Very harsh. Uh, 0448922604. That's the text if you would like to chip in with your Two cents worth this afternoon. Zero double four eight nine double two six zero four. Between now and the news at one, it's off to Muche for the results of the cattle market. Terry Birkin along to go through the yarding and the prices for you, and also heading way north to the Kimberley here in WA just to check in on a major rehabilitation project that's underway at a diamond mine. And in just a moment, it is off to the Bureau of Meteorology. Twenty-five to one. Glad you could be here on the Country Hour on the ABC, right across Western Australia. It's time to check weather conditions around the state. Off to the Bureau of Meteorology, and Angeline Prasad is with you this afternoon. Angeline, uh, just a few moments ago, I got a text from uh, a cattle station in the Kimberley, just saying there's talk of a cyclone heading to that part of the state in the next week or so. So maybe start with how's it looking this afternoon and give us any insights you can into the possibility of that. Good afternoon, Belinda. Yes. Uh, so um, 
let's talk about the weather for today across the Kimberley. So we're still expecting seasonal thunderstorms to continue. We're seeing the very isolated thunderstorms, uh, especially over the north and west of the Kimberley where the falls have been heavy. They're very isolated, so not likely to impact um, current uh, river levels, although there will be some, some flows through the river systems through the Kimberley. Now this weather pattern is going to continue until Wednesday. Now there is a tropical low in the Arafura Sea that is going to move into the Timor Sea tomorrow, as early as tomorrow. Um, and it will continue to moving west to southwest. Um, and um, uh, from Wednesday night or Thursday, there is an increased chance it could intensify into a tropical cyclone. There are large uncertainties in the movement, location and intensity of this system um, later this week. Um, if it travels closer to the Kimberley coast, the north or west coast, um, then we are likely to see increased rainfall um, across uh, the Kimberley uh, region, um, especially through the Fitzroy River catchment. So the earliest day where we could see sort of those widespread heavier falls is most likely going to be from Thursday if that system does travel closer to the coast and intensifies. At this stage, the chance of a tropical cyclone off the WA coast, uh, north or northwest coast, um, is very low. Uh, it does increase to low on Wednesday and then on Thursday and far Friday, the TC outlook, cyclone outlook is moderate. So there is a good chance we could see a tropical cyclone off uh, in our northern waters uh, later this week. Um, at this stage, there are large uncertainties on where it could would make fall at, at which category and if it does it's most likely going to be anywhere between the Dempia Peninsula all the way down to about Exmouth. So it's a very large area simply because there's a fair amount of uncertainty with this system and at this stage if it does make a landfall somewhere along that coast we could see a category two impact. All right that's certainly one to keep an eye on. I mean those already dealing with the sort of clean-up process uh, with the flooding in that part of the state. It's the last thing they sort of need. But I guess from a, a cattle station's perspective, there might be something in that for them. So, yeah, a tale of uh, two sort of stories in that perspective. But thank you for the insight uh, at this point anyway. Angeline, we'll keep an eye on it through the rest of the week. What's happening in the southwest Land Division this afternoon and the rest of the week? It is a pretty hot day right across the southwest land division, especially through the central wheat belt where we see seeing temperatures uh, reach 40 degrees. Um, slightly cooler on the west and south coasts uh, as we see sort of a cooler onshore flow developing. There is a west coast trough and thankfully it has uh, started to move inland. So uh, for the rest of today into tonight and tomorrow, it will continue to move um, eastwards uh, uh, across the inland parts of the southwest land division. And following this trough, we will see slightly cooler temperatures, both daytime and max, uh, daytime and overnight temperatures uh, reduce a little bit um, as this trough moves inland. Now, this trough, as it moves inland, is going to generate uh, showers and thunderstorms. So today, most likely, the thunderstorm area is going to be through the Gascoigne and uh, parts of the central wheat belt and the far inland parts of the central west. Tomorrow, that area of thunderstorms is most likely going to extend all the way down to the Esperance coast. Um, so there is that risk uh, of lightning. Rainfall-wise, um, 
today we're not really looking at a whole lot of rainfall because these uh, dry thunderstorms uh, within sort of this area, especially across the the central wheat belt and the far eastern parts of the Great Southern. So generally rainfall, if it's a dry thunderstorm, we could see as little as zero millimetres, but there could be falls up to five millimetres and very isolated five to eight um, millimetres sort of through these areas. Um, uh, tomorrow, as the trough moves inland, again, over the central wheat belt, the fires and parts of the Great Southern, again, um, zero to five millimetres of rainfall. Very isolated, though. It is uh, from discrete clouds. Um, now, later in the week, we do see a much cooler southerly change move, move through uh, as we see a cold front come through. A brush past the south coast. So they are much cooler temperatures, sort of getting into the uh, 20s, um, uh, especially from Friday onwards. But until then, it will still be a little bit warm uh, because the ridge that's pushing behind this trough isn't particularly strong. Just a little bit of rainfall, um, especially over the inland parts of the southwest land division and mostly sort of through the central weed belt area as that trough moves inland. And then the warnings this afternoon. So warnings... Uh, with that West Coast trough moving inland and those uh, rather hot temperatures, we do have elevated fire dangers. And uh, there is a fire weather warning out uh, for the Blackwood Fire Weather District for today. And we could see some areas of extreme fire dangers persisting into tomorrow. Uh, coastal wind warning, we have got strong wind warnings for the Gascoigne, Perth Coast, Bunbury and Lewin Coasts today. Angeline, thank you so much. Appreciate that. 19 to 1. Taking a look now at the rainfall figures. So being a Monday, this is a chance to look back over the weekend. So the last 72 hours to 9 o'clock this morning and just highlighting five mils and over. So starting in northern and eastern forecast districts in the Kimberley, Anna Plains 7, Campbellan 54, Country Downs 5, Curtin Aero 123, Dampier Downs Airstrip 12, Debessa 60, Derby Aero 53, Derby Main Road 16, Diggers Rest 1, Drysdale River Station 5, Fitzroy Crossing Aero 40, Fossil Downs 38, Gibb River 15, Kilto Station 28, Kununurra Aero 32, Lake Argyle Resort 6, Lansdowne 16, Leopold Downs 34, Liveringa Station 10, Mandora 9, Marion Downs 27, Mullabulla Airstrip 8, Mount Krause, 45, Mount Winifred, 34, Napier Downs, 13. Nicholson, 20, Old Mornington Homestead, 45, Parry Creek Farm, 18, Siddons Creek, 29, Theda, 17, Truscott, 19, Udiella, 32, Winjana Gorge, 52, Yampi Sound, 22, and Yambu, 8. In the Pilbara, Bonnie Down 7, Carlinda 17, Coolawanya 21, Emu Creek Station 87, that was over four days. Indy had 53. Karajini North 17, Cooline 20, Mardi 7, Mount Stewart 39, Onslow Airport 8, Red Hill 72, Sherlock 13, Warrenby 6, Yaline 17 and Yarry 22. The Gascoigne, Dalgetty Down 6, Hill Springs 7. And on the islands, Thevenard Island had 41. To the Southwest Land Division now, the Central West, Bajangara 8, 
And the same for the Bajangara Research Station, 8 in the gauge. Gutha West, 12. Mullawar, 12. Three Springs, 6. Wandana, 13. Wulgarong, 19. And Yuna, northeast, 12. The Lower West, Bolgatbin, 8. Southern Coastal Region, Denmark, 8. Kimberley, 15. Stirling South, 6. Central Wheat Belt, Amory Acres, 20. Dalwollanew, 9. Goodland, 6. Meriden, 5. Nattering, 7. And then moving into the Great Southern to wrap up, Cookeran, 5. Pingarup, 7. Tunney had 8. And Wandering, 5. ABC Radio, Fire Ban Information. And because of the extreme fire danger today, Monday, January 23rd, a total fire ban is in place for parts of the southwest region. It's for Boyup Brook, Bridgetown Greenbushes, Donnybrook bailing up. And during a total fire ban, you must not have any outdoor fires, including using solid fuel barbecues. Carry out any hot work like grinding, welding and gas cutting. And you can't go off-road driving in a four-wheel drive on a quad bike, motorbike, bobcat or similar, except for agricultural reasons. And if there's a harvest and vehicle movement ban from your local government, you can't use off-road vehicles even for industry or agriculture. There's a map of the affected area. It's on the Emergency WA website. And there's more about the do's and the don'ts during a total fire ban at the DFES website. Just repeating, there is a total fire ban today for parts of the southwest. ABC Local Radio Harvest Ban Information. And due to the risk of fire, the following local authorities have imposed a ban on harvesting and the use of any equipment, including vehicles, that could potentially start a fire. So those local authorities are Boyup Brook, Bridgetown Greenbushes, and the Narragin Shire. If you want some more detailed information, including zones and the lifting of harvest bans, the best place to get all that information is to contact your local government. This is the Country Hour, and it is 14 minutes to one. Uh, just before the news, that one, off to Mushay for the results of the cattle market. First up, though, the state government has made headway on a major rehabilitation project at an old Kimberley diamond mine. It's situated about 120 kilometres east of Derby. It's the Allendale Mine, which was abandoned in 2015 when Kimberley Diamond Company went into administration. It's since become the biggest rehabilitation project ever managed under the state's Mining Rehabilitation Fund. Tara Reid works for the Department of Mines, Industry Regulation and Safety and runs its Abandoned Mines program. She says cleaning up the old diamond mine and making it safe has been a massive job. The way everything was left after the liquidation sale really left things in pretty poor condition. The plant and equipment that remained hadn't been well managed as pieces were removed, and so there were a lot of quite scary safety hazards that weren't necessarily obvious to people coming through the area. So our biggest priority was to get that removed. And it, it took a few years. We had to work out whether it had any value. 
whether there was value for incoming tenement holders, for new mining operators, and a whole range of different aspects. But at the end of the process, we were able to award a tender and bring in a company who have a good safety record to help us remove all of that dangerous equipment and plant that remained. It really was such a big project and in a really remote area, obviously, there's no facilities out there. We had to bring in a temporary camp. And at the end of the day, we, we achieved some really remarkable outcomes. You know, 55% of all the material that was removed from the site was able to be recycled or repurposed with the remainder going out to waste. And all the waste materials went to licensed facilities. So there was no disposal of materials on, on site. So it, it's really the first step in trying to leave the area in, in a better state. So how far through the rehab process are you and what's left at the site now? It's really just the first phase is completed, which is the cleanup. We're about to step into the second phase. There's a tender in process to start the next piece of work, which is around earthworks. Again, we're still focused on safety right now and there's two open pits in the area and they're very unsafe. They've got some um, geotechnical issues, which means that the sides of the walls aren't as stable as you might like them to be. And access into the area is, is a little bit too easy in the current form. There were no abandonment buns built as the mine developed. So our first step is to make sure that people who come through the area aren't inadvertently putting themselves at risk. And we've got some fairly major erosion issues on some of the constructed landforms. So there's a number of landforms in the area. Some of them are tailing storage facilities. There are also low-grade stockpiles of rock and there's waste rock landforms as well. And some of the stockpiles are made of materials that over time have weathered and the material is quite mobile. So in our big rainfall conditions in the Kimberley, the material over time is eroding quite significantly and, and moving off the site, which we really don't like and we don't want to see that. So our first piece of business in that space is to slow that erosion process down and recover the material that has moved into country. What's the time frame that you're working to? When are we likely to see that rehab work complete as, as far as you can take it at Ellendale? We've got a few pieces of work that need to happen to achieve that. Like I said, right now, all we're focused on is safety. We also have some interesting challenges because obviously working with the Department of Mines, we are really trying to work with industries to enable them to continue resource development where possible. And Allendale still has, you know, a lot of prospectivity. There's a lot of people working in the area in exploration, still looking for diamonds. And the Allendale mine site itself it has pending mining leases over them. So anything that we do has to be sensitive to what might be required by industry in the future. We're also really sensitive to the fact that we're on Boonabur native tidal lands and we want to make sure that we're leaving things in a much better condition than was done when the company unfortunately didn't meet their obligations. With going forward, we've got at least two, probably three years worth of the three seasons worth of work. It sounds like a massive project. How much does a, a project of this scale cost? <laughs> How long's a piece of string? <laughs> oh, look, the first piece of work 
we've spent, I think, up to the end of last financial year was just over $2 million. The current contract will close hopefully the end of January. The cleanup piece of work cost in the vicinity of $9 million. Obviously, that's not finalised. We're still working through the, the last part of that. From the Department of Mines, Industry Regulation and Safety, that's Tara Reid with Steph Sinclair. Eight to one. Regional butchers are struggling to keep up with demand for the local meat products. And it comes as consumers are increasingly preferring paddock to plate products and further transparency in the meat industry. In regional Australia, butchers are changing their businesses to try and meet those demands. Lucy Cooper has this report. As long as he can remember. Stuart Christensen has loved butchers. Whenever we went somewhere, I'd stare through a butcher shop window. And so one day, decided to buy a butcher shop. That's how it got started. After moving to the outback Queensland town of Hewarden, four hours inland from Townsville, Mr Christensen has opened Flinders Butcher in the small town, home to 1,100 people. He says providing a quality product is of the utmost importance to him. It's always the best idea to have the best product you can have. My, my terms, if you, if you wouldn't eat it yourself, you wouldn't serve it to a customer. So that's my philosophy with the meat industry. Uh, the, the pork, well, we don't slaughter the pork locally. It, it comes from the south, uh, from big meats at Biggerton. Um, and the, the lamb predominantly is local lamb um, from a number of little small suppliers and a, a small grain assist feedlot. Yeah, the emphasis is mainly on quality, but the local, local is good. But yeah, at the end of the day, you need quality product. It's very important to be able to supply your local customers. Uh, and we do a lot of, in the tourist season, we get extremely busy. Um, the, the numbers swell by the hundreds every week. Uh, and they, they appreciate the effort. Um, and yeah, they, some of them say they just come here to go to the butcher shop to buy something. That's, that's how you look. So this makes us feel good and, yeah. Mr Christensen has a local property and slaughterhouse which has created a full paddock-to-plate experience for his customers and it's paying off. Since we've bought the butcher shop, um, we've, at an estimate we've gone up 500% in sales. Um, yeah, virtually sky's the limit, but yeah, staff, staff, staffing is the issue to have enough staff to be able to do anything. Further along the Flinders Highway in the township of Richmond, you'll meet Keegan Nelson and Lorraine Johnston, the proud owners of Moselle Meats. Lorraine says she was surprised to end up in the trade, given she used to be a banker. Mainly his idea, so his parents have been in the industry for many years, 20 plus years, so they had the avatar and for us it was more of we wanted something for ourselves, so we bought the butcher shop five years to finish their plan on on selling their own products, so that's how it all started, was him, I'm a banker, by when I first met him, now I'm a butcher. Mr Nelson said, given demand for their product, it's hard to source everything from the small township. What we can source locally ourselves we do, so all our lamb in store, our goat, our mutton, um, a lot of our beef, so whatever we can source off quarter beef we do. We do have to buy a few ribs and rumps in, obviously, because you can't keep up with your local trade, but... Yeah, everything we can possibly source, we do. Our pigs come from Charles Towers, that's the closest piggery. Um, yeah, and everything we can sort of get out of North Queensland, right down to our jams and chutneys and everything like that's from a local lady here makes them. And yeah, it's good. We try and keep as much as we can, as local as we can, to keep the money around this area. Moselle Meats is also a closed supply chain operation 
which Mr Nelson says not only cuts costs but provides transparency to consumers. We've got the complete supply chain from from raising them as a calf right through to the, the day you give it to the customer to put it on their table to eat. The only thing we're not doing is cooking it for them. Um, but for us it is, it's very important to be able to put our hands on the whole food chain, to be able to control the product from start to finish and to be able to guarantee to someone that it's good. Um, and it is to reinsure too that um, the product is fresh. You know, one week it's in the paddock and the next week it's on your plate. It's not been three months in a truck or in the process. So. Given the Flinders Butcher has recently undergone a new reno and Moselle Meats only opened in 2018, it would appear butchers across Australia are going pretty well. But according to qualified butcher and consultant Alison Meager, these guys are an exception to the rule. I see a lot closing and I guess if you don't see them, you don't think about them anymore, do you? Like if you're <laughs> butcher shops, I'm saying, like if you don't see them, you don't really think about them. So um, I see that they're closing, they're declining. Miss Meager says providing a paddock-to-plate experience is what consumers want and butchers need to adapt to that. Otherwise, they won't be able to compete with supermarkets. People really want to know where their cows come from, right? And you can kill your own beasts. And I think there's a lot... It's a much more relaxed method as well. Like, the cows are much happier. Um, There's not as much stress. So, yeah, I think that whole paddock to plate and the home kill is becoming very, very popular. It'd be awesome if people were doing more paddock-to-plate stuff. I think it's going to go that way anyway because people are more concerned about where their, their products come from, aren't they? So um, it's, it is definitely going to go that way. <laughs> and we have to prepare ourselves now for that. And you'd think pulling 12-hour days every day as a butcher might make you sick of meat. Think again. I love all meat. I shouldn't, they say, but yeah. Um, I love a nice piece of rump steak. I'd, I'd eat it five days a week. Do you eat it five days a week? Pretty well, yes. Oh, he's in the right business. Stuart Christensen, he's a butcher in North Queensland. That report from Lucy Cooper. Off to the markets now to Muche for the results of the cattle market. And 994 head of cattle were yarded today. Terry Birkin, hello. How was it today? Hi, Belinda. Numbers increased by 227 for a total of 994 today with an even mix of pastoral and local cattle. The market across the board was up with 20 cents on younger cattle and up to 40 cents a kilo on mature cows and bulls. The buying field enjoyed good support from processors, live exporters and feedlotters all bidding actively. Vealer steers were up 20 cents with lighter steers selling from 250 to 464 cents and heavier vealer steers realising 476 cents per kilo. Vealer heifers lifting also 20 cents making 250 to 424 cents with the heavier heifers selling to 466 cents per kilo. Yearly steers range from 290 cents to 470 cents, depending on quality, while the better yearling heifers sold from 320 to 408 cents per kilo. Grown steers selling from 332 cents to 378 cents, while grown heifers sold from 248 cents to 380 cents per kilo. Store cows are making 148 cents to 282 cents, Medium cows selling up to 280 cents, while heavier cows return 248 cents to 298 cents per kilo. Young bulls range from 200 cents to 480 cents, quality dependent, and mature heavy bulls realise 308 cents per kilo. 
This has been Terry Birkin for MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service. Terry, thank you so much. Appreciate that. Terry's back tomorrow to report from the Muche Sheep Market. The news is next.